have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me fill you in on a few things. Like first and foremost, it's free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Then Anchor is going to distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on multiple platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more. Even better, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And it's so easy, even somebody like me can do it. Now download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And I know you hear me. Hi everyone, this is Linda Young, OG voice of Frieza, Dragon Ball Z, voice of Genkai, Yu Yu Hakusho, voice of poorly Yusuka, Fairy tale and more. <laughs> Excuse me for interrupting, but this is Lord Frieza, voice of Linda Young. You are listening to the I Know You Hear Me podcast with Flynn Hendricks. Wow, I am so sorry, but Frieza is a control freak. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to a very special episode of the I Know You Hear Me podcast. And if you're like me right now, you're trying to figure out what day it is because this episode is not dropping on a Friday. No, this is actually dropping on Tuesday, March 22nd. And this is a very special day for a lot of reasons. And you might hear a familiar face or, in this case, a familiar voice on the podcast today. You remember him from season one. I've got my good buddy Duncan Brandon back on the line with me. And the reason we're dropping this special episode today is because today is the launch date for his book, The Soldier Code. And we wanted to make sure that everybody got their eyes and ears on this book. So we're going to take the time today to just jump straight in to what Duncan has had going on, what his purpose for writing this book was, and what we as, you know, modern day Christians in an ever-changing, ever-crazy society can take from this book and apply to our everyday lives. So we're just going to jump right into it, man. Duncan, thank you for being back on here. Well, thanks for having me back on. Uh, and uh, I'm super excited about this. And uh, I mean, it almost sounded like you had written that introduction out or something, man. That was really good. You navigated a whole lot of water there. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you, that was all ad lib. And that's just me being that excited to actually have you back on here. And I know you and I have oh, talked off air. I've been counting down to get this book. Um, I've actually spoken about it with people in my small group at church. So, I mean, like I, I've been anticipating getting this book in my hand. So I'm just glad we actually had the chance to sit down and do this today. It's, it's pretty surreal. I got to say as a first time author, uh, to, to hold the thing here in my hand, I got the paperback here. We got the, the hardback uh, copies that just came in and so forth. So it's, it's a super exciting time. And obviously, like you said, it's, it's the culmination of a, of, of a whole bunch of life experience, 30 years, uh, in ministry with families, with mm -hmm. kids, with college and career, with men, with women, um, with uh, small groups, uh, like, you, and they, like you said, with yours and so forth. And so it's all of that. And then it's it's 20 years of studying warrior culture, ancient warrior history and so forth that God just really gave me this passion for um, and, and a really, really cool story about how all of that began and all of it culminates into a book, right? Just a calling yep. to go, okay. God, you've given me something really special here, and we're in some pretty crazy times right now. I think these 
these tools can be really, really helpful. Absolutely. So, here we are. And that's that's 100 percent true. And just to uh, give our give our listeners a bit of a chance to catch up with who you are, I'm going to give the uh, the sprinkling of the introduction. And I'm also going to encourage you guys to go back and listen to Duncan's episode in season one, because, you know, like this guy has a great story to tell. It's a very emotional, very powerful story. But Mm. most people will know you as a voice actor. You were the voice of Barney the Dinosaur at one point, Chuck E. Cheese. You were heavily yeah. involved in anime with uh, with Funimation, now Crunchyroll, and you were, you know, in the Dragon Ball franchise, <laughs> among other things. But, yeah. you know, like, everybody can go back in season one, which I highly encourage you to do, and listen to your amazing journey there. But I want to get right into the meat and potatoes of all this, and let, let's talk about the Soldier Code now, because the mm-hmm. biggest thing that really jumps out to me is that its focus is on spiritual warfare. And I mean, you know, there yeah. are thousands of books on this subject you hear about conferences going on teaching series like there's so much out there but mm-hmm. you mentioned the crazy world that we live in everything that's going on <laughs> man just tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for the soldier code and what makes it unique from you know like every other spiritual warfare you know book media genre that's going on out there yeah so the soldier code is is a lot of my story wrapped up in there um and God bringing this stuff into my own life, God starting to work these, a lot of these principles into my own life. So much of my testimony is wrapped up in this book, but the journey for me really began back in back in 1999, um, that far back. I mean, I'm dating myself now, right? But, um, <laughs> 1999, yeah, I'm a bookworm. Um, I've always loved history and, and, and other things like that. I was, you know, I was a good boy in school, so I read a lot and all that kind of stuff, but I'm, I'm in a Barnes & Noble bookstore um, and I'd gone in there looking for something else. Uh, but as I was passing the history section that day, I just felt this, this prompting, just this, this burden of the Lord to stop. Hey, stop. I, I know that you're doing this, but you know, I, I've got something over here. And I felt the Lord just really kind of pulling me over towards the history section. And I ended up here at the military history section and right in front of, of a copy of Sun Tzu's Art of War. And, you know, of course, I'd, I'd heard of the book, you know, here mm-hmm. or there or whatever, uh, but and never thought about buying a copy, much less, you know, reading this thing or whatever. And um, here I am in front of this thing. And I just really felt impressed of the Lord to buy this thing. Absolutely. And I was like, um, OK, <laughs> so I, I'll, I'll do that. And I guess I'll take it home and read this thing. And I took it home and I began to read now. The first, literally the first principle that Sun Tzu speaks of, very first chapter, he's got 13 chapters of just these military proverbs, these maxims, these axioms um, on on fighting warfare in all of these fronts, all of the, the factors that go into it from discipline to military intelligence to strategy and so forth. And the very first thing he says right out of the gate just knocked me back in my chair. He said, war is a matter of vital importance Mm -hmm. to the state. The province of life or death, the road to survival or ruin, it is mandatory that it be thoroughly studied. Now, I had gone into the bookstore looking for some spiritual resource material for Bible study and so forth, and then God walks me over here to this section, you know, and I end up with a copy of Art Art of War in my head, and I'm like, good night. That's like, 
that principle that I've just read, it's just like saying Ephesians 6, 12 in a different way. Mm-hmm. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. And then Paul, of course, in that book goes on, you know, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And I'm, I'm sitting here going, wow. And as I be- begin reading this, literally... I'm, I'm having these moments, and maybe you've experienced too, and, and your audience out here, you've been reading something, and it's just, you know that this is for right now. You mm-hmm. know that this is God talking to you. Uh, you know, life experience hitting you in the face, and you're just going, good grief, are you kidding me? Come on. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And just principle after principle, I was like, this is, this is amazing because these principles that I'm reading here they translate straight onto the spiritual battlefield of Christians. And, and again, to keep in mind, this is 1999 that I'm reading through this. And as time has worn on, as I, and I continued to study military culture and all this kind of stuff, the things have only become more applicable. So I finished reading The Art of War. And at, at the end of this, you know, I'm just having my prayer time one day and kind of wondering out loud with God and, and just going, okay, God, um, you had me read this thing. I, I see all of these types and shadows and, and these parallelisms that just go straight into Christian spiritual warfare, the battles that we fight with with our sin nature, our flesh, the battles that we wage with the the lost culture of the world, just the temptations, the allurements, the pride, the vanity, the greed, the materialism, all of these idols of culture. And, and finally, obviously, the devil himself, the things that he comes at us with, the head games, the psych warfare, okay, the, the, the fiery darts that Paul speaks of, and so forth. And I'm, and I'm going, so if Sun Tzu, which is a Ch- you know, Chinese military classic, The Art of War, if he's talking about ancient Chinese warfare, and I'm getting this much out of it, and these types of lore and lessons that are so relevant to the Christian experience, what happens if I go and study the samurai? Or if I go and study the Spartan, yeah, or the Gladiator, or the Legionary, you know, the 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 Celt, what whoever, and I, I you know, I I, I always say I I, and I talk about this in the book too. Yeah, I would love to say I heard this. Young know, <laughs> and I want you to study. Right. Um, <laughs> that didn't happen, of course. But what I did have was one more strong impression, Absolutely. and it was. I liken it to a father looking at his son and just going, you know, with this little smile peeking from the corner of his mouth going, hmm, I don't know. Why don't you go check that out? (laughs) (laughs) And and so I did. I started looking into samurai culture, Uh uh, medieval Japan. And, of course, the same thing started happening. You know, I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading in Inazuma Tobi's Bushido, um, the turn of the century piece that he wrote on it. Then I'm reading the Hakure, um, uh, which is a, another. Uh, sam- it's a samurai piece of military proverbs, uh, written by an actual samurai of of the uh, Sengoku period. Um, other pieces all along the way, and then I'm jumping into Spartans, and I'm looking into ancient Greek warfare. So I, I'm I'm looking at, at these guys, and. The, the same thing continues to happen, and pretty soon I've got this whole collection of lore lessons and principles and so forth. And as I'm starting to face trouble in my own life, in my own family, my parenting with my kids, struggles in marriage and so forth, these things are right there, and they are so relevant. Absolutely. And 
and pretty soon I, I'm, I'm like, I've, I've, I've got to share this stuff. Um, you know, friends that I'm doing life with at the time and doing small group with, they're like, you know, what are you into lately? And I'm, I'm sharing this stuff and they're just, they're enamored and they're going, yeah. what are you going to do with this? And so I started building events and teaching events and retreats and things like that. And people's lives were being profoundly changed. They're going back doing businesses differently. They're going back and, and, and taking these lessons into their marriages too and so forth. And, you know, years later, just a few years ago, when when I was looking at writing this thing, seasons changing for Alana and me, and we're looking at moving back into Fort Worth, Texas, where we live now, and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, "What do you feel like God's telling you to do?" And I, said, I feel like it's time to take all of this stuff and put it in one place in a book. And Absolutely. that's how the Soldier Code came to be. Just spent the last few years putting everything together in one place and finding the publisher and all that kind of stuff. And and now here we are. Absolutely. I mean, so much of that, like, really jumps out to me. And something you mentioned, too, is like when you discover this, it seems like it's that almost like that aha moment, like it's meant to help you right then and there. And something you said, too, like just bringing your own unique experiences into this, like being led to, you know, research these other cultures and heritages and see how these things kind of end up tying mm -hmm. together. Like it, That really stands out. But my question is, is like, this is a 100% like obviously unique approach to teaching this subject, <laughs> man. Like it's deep, yeah. it's unique, it's authentic and I love it. But like, mm. why would somebody not just, you know, like open the Bible to Ephesians six, like you mentioned, and just do the line by line breakdown of like the armor of God. And you know, like, what is it exactly? Like you mentioned the dad with the little smile peeking out of the corner of his mouth. <laughs> why do you feel like God led you down this path specifically? Yeah. I do. Super question. Um, the, the place where I go back to, um, I remember years ago, and just another profound moment that I just had with, with Jesus as I was preparing to teach a message one day. Um, I think I was teaching college and career at the time, as a matter of fact. But I was in Matthew 13, and I'm looking at the parables of Jesus. And Matthew chapter 13 and verse 34 tells us that when it came time for Jesus to speak publicly, Mm -hmm. Not privately to his disciples, but publicly. It says he never taught the multitudes without a parable. And, and I just remember having just this hmm moment going, do I approach teaching that same way? No, I, I, I haven't before. And, and, and why not? Good grief. He never spoke to the multitude without a parable? Wow. And, and, and then I'm asking, okay, now why? Why did Jesus approach ministry in this way? And uh, and second of all, let's let's reacquaint ourselves with, with what a parable is. And so parables, of course, in Jesus' time, uh, he's doing illustrated sermons with the people of his day, but mm -hmm. he's drawing from the culture that they're familiar with. Of course, first century Jewish culture, his main audience there, that's an agrarian culture. They're right. a farming culture. They're a fishing culture. They're familiar with merchants in the marketplace selling gold or, or costly array, pearls, things like this. They're familiar with having soil underneath their fingernails and seeds and smelling fish in, <laughs> in the market and casting <laughs> nets and all this kind of stuff. Yep. So everything that is familiar to their personal life experience, their everyday, that's where he starts. As he's trying to relate the kingdom truths, the, the truths of the kingdom of heaven, instead of starting with the spiritual and the heavenly, he starts with the earthly and the familiar with these guys. And then he says, now, the kingdom of heaven is like that. 
The kingdom of heaven is like that guy casting a net into the sea and gathering all these fish. It's like this farmer casting seed and some's falling on the wayside, on the trail. Some's falling among stones and some's falling among thorn, thorns and thistles and, and some is stolen away by the enemy. All of these things. Mm-hmm. And then he begins to, to, to lay out the truth. And when the disciples are finally alone with him and they ask him, they say, why are you doing this? This is really strange. We're not used to somebody taking this kind of approach. He says, because seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear and their heart doesn't understand. And I basically, he goes on and and I love the way the message words it here and the the message paraphrase that uh, Peterson had done. He said, I don't want them repeating the same thing. That, that, that they did with Isaiah, of them staring, staring till doomsday, basically, uh, and, and not getting it. I want them to see. And Jesus was relating the fact that parables have this amazing capability of taking us out uh, of, of, of our normal everyday lives, putting, in the, is, putting us in these imaginary worlds with things that we might be familiar with or, or, and so forth, but it gives us permission to do a lot of things. It gives us permission to look at objective, important, life-changing truths in this kind of story fashion, in this place where it's safe, in this place where there's no judgments, in this place also though where we can wrestle with hard truths and lies mm-hmm. and falsehoods and things, and we can come to some really important life-changing decisions. Because when these material worlds, these immaterial worlds, these fantasy worlds or history or whatever it is we're dealing with, when these things dissolve away, we're just left with the practical and what we're dealing with right now and the truth that just hit us right between the eyes. And that's what was happening with the disciples. That's what was happening with the Pharisees as they were mm-hmm. hearing this stuff. Says they started perceiving at different times going, hey, he's talking about us. <laughs> and they were getting mad because they didn't want to receive truth. Right. But the seekers, the genuine seekers, they were hearing it going, okay, wait, I think I get what he's talking about. He's talking about this is what God's like. And this is what this is this is like and so forth so when it came time as god's walking me down this path with all this history and so forth i asked that same question i thought this is a really strange way to approach this subject god and he brought me back to that lesson on parables and so forth and i was like good grief it's so true the plight as jesus began his teaching ministry there in in the first century uh, jewish culture he had people that, that were around Scripture all day, too. Mm-hmm. He had people that were getting it till they're blue in the face, every synagogue. But, like you said, they're not getting it. They're not making some connections. Yep. Kingdom life is not happening, and as a matter of fact, they're kind of desensitized to it. Um, and, and we're going to have to approach this thing in a different way if we're going to break through to their hearts. And so he approaches that, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, my gosh. And I, I was having, it took me to my experience as I was studying this history and so forth, it started hitting me right in the face. And then as I'm looking at, at Spartans taking a stand at Thermopylae, as I'm looking at samurai and this culture, this age of war that they are being reared in um, and, and, and writing Proverbs now, like step from under the eve and you're a dead man um, and so forth, I'm thinking, good grief, we as Christians, in our approach to warfare, we're making so many of the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. That this, like the samurai, we're not ready. 
We right. step from under the eaves. We don't take we don't take time to do devotions. We don't take time to dive into our Bibles. We're not taking time to pray. Uh, we're not spending time with 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 loved ones and in fellowship and so forth. We're we're out here like the sheep on Animal Planet. You know, the little antelope running around by itself that gets picked off by the lion. Yep. And so, so many of these things became real. It was now it was obvious why. And my friends began to say, "Have the same experience too." So there's a fresh urgency and an understanding that really begins to happen. And in the book, what we do is we go back and forth, kind of this parable to explanation kind of fashion. Uh, you know, the book's divided up into about nine chapters, and six of these are specifically related to six ancient warrior cultures that we explore. We start with the Spartans, uh, start with the samurai, and we look at this age of war that they were raised in, and then we talk about how that relates to the Christian experience. We're in an age of war ourselves. Absolutely. But, but unlike the samurai, well, unlike like the samurai first were, we're, we're not living with the wisdom that we need to either. And so we go back and forth between this lore and lessons, look at the Christian applications, and we look at history, culture, and context in Scripture too. I break down original language, that, that training that I got in seminary to learn how to do this stuff. Right. It all comes into play. So people are getting solid, hardcore stuff, but it's taking a completely different journey around the barn. And the result is that I've been seeing with people and all of our, our beta readers and so forth is they're just going, my gosh, this changes how I approach warfare. It changes how I see it, how I see it with my family and how I'm doing it now. And it's, uh, it's just powerful stuff. Absolutely. And I mean, so much of what you said right there, like where you said that it mirrors things that we're going through today, some of the things you said automatically popped an image of things that we're, you know, like we're dealing with in today's society where people hear things or people see things, but they don't put the pieces together. And yeah. I mean, that that it's like history repeats itself. And that's man, that's a lot to Very take much. in. Very much. And and what I've what I've found is, you know, you mentioned, you know, why don't we just do this kind of Ephesians six? Let's just exegete. Let's just go line by line. Let's just, just go straight at it and so forth. Obviously, Jesus didn't do that and so forth. But as I began to dig further into Scripture, I saw that the prophets weren't doing that either. Right. The prophets, when they were dealing with with hardened ancient Israel, when they're dealing with a culture that's seeing but not seeing, hearing but not hearing, and, and definitely not following and tracking with God, uh, and so forth, they were doing the same thing. And as you walk further into the New Testament and you look at the works of the apostles, all of the apostolic writings and so forth, well, good grief. We talk about it going line by line in Ephesians 6, but let's let's take a little wider version. He's looking at Roman legionary armor for crying out loud as he's relating these truths. Mm -hmm. So why would we then? Why would we not first talk about, okay, what was Roman legionary armor even comprised of? Right. And how did it get to that place? How did they feel about this? What's the kind of discipline that they used in their approach to warfare? Let's talk about how these guys did it for a second. And that'll give us a little bit more understanding of why the Holy Spirit led Paul to do this. And if you dig there, Start looking across the rest of the New Testament. I mentioned um, early on in the book, as we're kind of doing this setup of why this approach, there's it, just in, 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 the, in the New Testament, there's about 77 different allusions and references for ancient Greek, ancient Roman, military, athletic culture. And you'll see it in the Gospels. You'll see it in the apostolic writings from, from Romans all the way into James. John uses it. 
uh, everybody uses it in some of these passages that we've grown so familiar with, like First Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, mm-hmm. because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, resist him, steadfast in the faith. That word resist there. This is Peter. Now, this is Peter, fisherman that he was. We, we think of Peter as kind of this big, clumsy guy and you know, he's rebuking Jesus at one hand, you know, <laughs> saying, you're not going to do this. And Jesus is having to say, Satan, get behind me. By this point, Peter, Peter has become familiar with this stuff. And Peter says, resist Satan steadfast in your faith. That word is military terminology of the period. Antisteme, which is where we get the word antis- antihistamine. <laughs> and, and it literally means to resist, to push back. And it's terminology coming straight out of phalanx warfare, where armies are clashing shield against shield, pushing back and forth Mm -hmm. and trying to punch a hole one side against the other to collapse that phalanx on one side and and, and destroy that army and then pursue on to the goal of taking a city. And so now this is Peter talking about this. James uses this type of language. Paul uses this. And on we go all the way into Revelation where John starts talking about this. And then as we start looking more at their references, their illustrations and so forth, then we get into some of the, the crazy stuff where, you know, Peter, he compares, he compares Satan's tactics to a prowling lion. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and the, the original language that he uses here in, in, in the Greek, it's not rated G Christianity. Right. He literally likens, likens the devil to a prowling lion looking to pounce on the prey mm-hmm. to rip it to pieces and then lick the bones clean yep. from the blood. That's the illustration. Now you go, wow, that's, that's pretty graphic. Um, yeah, that kind of makes me uncomfortable. Think about the period and the culture that he's talking to. He's trying to get people ready for the Roman persecution. They're about, the church is about to face 300 years where people are going to be dying in the arenas. They're going to be skewered by gladiators. They're going to be trounced and torn apart by lions and bulls and rhinoceros and so forth. They're going to be hiding in catacombs for their life Mm -hmm. and so forth. And they're dealing also at the same time with an idolatrous culture, an amoral culture. Very much so. And they're being immersed in it. And they're trying to just get their bearings and live day to day and know how to share this gospel. And they've got to have guys speaking into them that can basically lay it for lay it out for them like drill sergeants. And that's how a lot of the epistles really would have come across. James, you read the book of James, you've got five chapters and this guy's all up in your business. Yeah. <laughs> By the time oh, he gets yeah. to chapter four, he is, he's in the church's face and he's going, you adulterers, you adulteresses. Man, and it's, whoa, hang on a second there, Jack. <laughs> and he's saying, hey, stop arguing with one another. Stop infighting right here in, in, in the crowd. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And again, it's military language. He says, submit to God. And it literally means to position, to rank yourself under a captain, under a head. He's saying, remember who your head is. Remember who your leader is. Stop quarreling in the ranks and get back to facing the enemy like we need to. Absolutely. And man, so much of that, that last statement right there, like there's so much to unpack, but like the biggest thing, especially that jumps out right there is being aware of all that, especially in today's day and age, where if you turn it over to God and you stop infighting, you stop fighting with yourself, you stop fighting with everybody around you, it will help you overcome all these other struggles that 
are man-made and mm -hmm. you have to have somebody that tells you these things like you're an adulterer, you're doing this or you're doing this. And people need yeah. to hear that. I mean, it's very powerful. It is. It's, it Obviously, these things aren't comfortable when, right. when we start really getting honest with God. Okay. And I try to do this a lot in the book because I don't want anybody to have the impression that I'm, 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 you know, my, I'm Ken and my wife's Barbie and we're the perfect Christians, you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> because we know that's, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about Jesus. It is about the savior that we all needed. It is about him redeeming our lives and making sense out of them. It is about him saving us from ourselves, from our sin. It is about his deliverance, his freedom, his power. And I try in every chapter to get into some personal testimony where all these things became really relevant when we in in the samurai chapter the first warrior chapter that we dive into for example mm -hmm. there was another side of samurai culture we call it the ronin he was the really the antithesis of the samurai the, the samurai meant those who serve right and it was the their archetype their ideal of a master warrior was a servant completely devoted to fighting for his master's cause ready to die at a moment's notice. If it, and if his master was gone, the samurai so identified with his master that when that master died, samurai would often take their own life uh, in what was called Jun Shi, following in death, mm -hmm. take their own life. And obviously, suicide's not an example we, we want to follow, and Scripture right. speaks against that and so forth. But what the culture does speak to and what we bring out and talk about and then look at in Scripture so much is that the samurai understood that serving his Lord that following him, that rooting life in him was what it really came down to. And he was ready to devote his life to this transcendent cause and not pursue all of this other garbage and nonsense of the world. He was living in an age of war where he couldn't do that anyway. If he started thinking like a citizen, thinking like a civilian, he could get killed the next minute. Mm -hmm. He would step from under the eaves and forget, hey, there's a war going on and yep. snap. And we're doing that left and right here in, 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 in the body of Christ. And so the samurai had to rethink his world. Well, on the other side of that, this Ronin culture, a Ronin was a masterless samurai. It was somebody, he'd lost his master in battle, or maybe he lost his master um, because his master committed an honor code violation and his Lord you know, wanted him to, to remove himself from the earth. Mm -hmm. But this masterless culture, um, you still had samurai running around with skills. You still, this, all of these powerful skill sets, you, they can wield a sword, they can wield a naginata, they, they are lethal with their hands and feet and all of these things. And they're coming back from war and the Ronin, they were outcasts. They were looked upon in a, a very derogatory word. Because they didn't have a lord, they were considered you know, what we call a bastard, right? They, they were, they were disowned. They were orphan samurai. And so when they came back, they didn't have places to stay. They'd lost their livelihood. They didn't have means. All of a sudden these once great and honored men and, uh, and people, they, they were now vagabonds in the culture and society looked, looked upon them in a terrible way. They would, they would try to find places to stay. They would try to find work and they were outcasts. It was it was like it was like Vietnam War veterans coming back in the Man. '60s. A lot of them they were despised instead of being honored, instead of being helped, right. instead of being walked back into culture. 
And you start digging into some of this stuff and you go, well, as a pastor, one of the things that I've had to confront with here in the church had to deal with is the what we call the de-churched. There are those right here that still believe in Jesus. They still love him with all their heart, but they have been wounded by the church. They have been forsaken by the church. They've mm-hmm. had an experience with a leader, a pastor, a minister where they were wrong, where they were hurt, where they were abandoned. And they've gotten away from churches and so forth because maybe they were struggling with some sin at the same time. Maybe they'd, they'd had a moral failure or something. And instead of being restored, they were cast off. Right. They felt oh, beat man. down and so forth. And the, the this Ronin culture, there was such a, such a great comparison there because these believers— these brothers and sisters, and you're you're thinking probably thinking of some people off the top of your head. I have people in my experience. I was one of them also. Uh-huh. I was a guy that um, in my in my time um, as a pastor, I didn't have a moral failure in a, in an affair or anything like that. But I had been raised in a very abusive environment growing up, and so. When I would come into situations, life pressures of raising kids, marriage, dealing with the stress of job and so forth, I would just get upset and anxious and fearful and angry and just became just just a rotten guy to live with at times. We would have, my wife and I would go back and forth from these great moments to seeing God do amazing things for people's lives in ministry and deal and trying to deal with some of our own stuff, stuff that, you know, wounds that I'm not healed of and not knowing what to do. And. I would. I went to some Christian counselors, and you know, got some poor advice at times, and and just some other stuff that just didn't work. And thirteen years into our marriage, you know, my wife and I get through with a date night one night, and we're just we're laying there in bed and just talking and kind of yucking it up and and having a good time, and and, and just off the top of my head, just tongue in cheek, I went, "You still think I'm all that in a bag of chips, don't you, honey?" <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and, and and there was this long pause, like. And finally, she said, do you want to know what I really think? And I was like, well, of course I do. And she said, she just began to open up and and really spill just all of this hurt. And it was an awakening for me. It was an awakening for her because she had been really kind of stuffing this for a long time uh, and so forth. And it started this path where all of a sudden we had to make this choice. Do Do we do what the Bible says? which in James 5.16 says, confess your sins, your faults to one another, mm-hmm. and then pray for one another that you may be healed. Is, is any among you sick? Let him go to the elders of the church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, that word sick there in the Greek, it doesn't just mean, oh, you got a physical illness. No, it can mean, it can mean something going on on the inside that's just not right, and you right. just haven't opened up about it. And now here we were confronted with, hey, we've got, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And I've got a troubled marriage, and I'm struggling with this. And so we went to our elders at the time, began to open up about this, and they arranged for me to take a sabbatical. They arranged for us to, to have marital counseling and put a lot of things in place to help save our marriage. And I walked people what that was like in the book. It was humiliating. It was rough. And there came a point where the place where we were at at the time, they started the path right, but then they turned around and in the middle of this topsy-turvy situation, they fired me. And it was rough because we felt abandoned. 
And now we didn't have a spiritual home and we didn't know what to do. And praise God, we still had a whole spiritual family around us of other of friends. Of course, yeah. And, and eventually another pastor who came alongside us and helped us continue to heal and, and find our way back. But there's a lot of people out there who were alone like that, and they don't have those relationships. And yeah. so that's kind of the meaty, when we, we get through all these lore and lessons, we get down to brass tacks and we start start you know pulling back the veneer that we all have and going, what's your life really like? What's yeah. really going on? And I just try to honestly talk with people about things that we've walked through, healing in our marriage, things that we learned in our parenting things that we've seen in church and helped other people with and so forth. And, and then relate that directly to people and encourage them. Hey, we're all fighting these battles. Yes. You're not alone. And there's others that you can do this with. And Hey, here's some weapons and some tools that are really going to help you, man. And so much of that just hit so close to home too. I've, (laughs) I've known it. I've lived it, you know, still have some of those struggles myself. So man, like just, that mm. that is a great you know great thing to have in this book to just help everybody that may not be to that point where they're ready to open up and this may be the guiding factor like you mentioned in our previous podcast you know the yeah. planting of the seed that eventually blossoms into them finding their way so i mean that's that's some powerful yeah. powerful stuff yeah um and you know i realized that uh, you know that coming into coming into a book like this um it's a like you said earlier on. It's a different kind of beast. It's a different way to approach mm-hmm. this this old subject. And I, you know, the next question that I kind of asked God in that ongoing discussion with Him in prayer times and so forth was, okay, I get it. I get the why for doing this, but why now? Why now? Why, why this? Why for this time in this place and so forth? And and <laughs> immediately just felt that question back from Him. Well, how good is our warfare really? How, how really good is it? And, and that prompted more. I, I started diving into studies like by the Barna Group, by the Pew Research Center, uh, and so forth, and looking at some of the real-time statistics of how's the church doing in this place? How are pastors personally mm-hmm. doing? How are congregants doing? And so forth. And this is, again, we're, this is where we get into the brass tacks. Um, I look at some of the real-time data, and we're just talking about pastoral health. of pastors struggle with depression, 35% of them. So almost one third of the body of Christ, of leaders that we're looking to, to help us, they're struggling with depression. Well, you can either look at that and go, well, good grief. Why would I even go to them? Or you can look at that and go, they're just like me, actually. Yeah. Wow. They're right. There's some of the things. And and another 42%. Okay. of pastors, they're wishing just like you, just like me. They were going, man. I wish I spent more time with my kids. I feel like I'm struggling with these tensions to lead my family while I'm leading a congregation. Fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's just get raw and real as men here. Fifty percent of pastors, according to recent studies, they view pornography on a regular basis. They fight the same lust, the same temptations that is out there in your face on social media, Mm -hmm. in your face online. Uh, God forbid if you ever click on any of this stuff, because then it's in your inbox, then it's here, then it's there, and all of that kind of stuff. And and, and there's another 53% that they're coming out of seminary, straight out of seminary. And as the the rubber starts meeting the road and they start having to, to counsel people and 
teach on some hardcore stuff like this, 53% of them are going, seminary didn't prepare me for this kind of stuff. Oh, but we, wow. we don't have, we don't have the tools yeah, uh, and so forth. So that's just the stuff with, with them is you start looking at, at the stuff with, with the body of Christ, uh, a few more things here. Um, from 2008 to 2017, so this is a nine-year study mm-hmm. um, that, that one of the groups out there did, um, the number of born-again believers within the church fell from 46 to 31%. Wow. So we've, we've got some 15% here of believers that, that just kind of dropped out and, and kind of disappeared from the numbers here, from the flocks. Since uh, 1993, okay, and this is coming into the present, weekly church attendance has plummeted from, from 45 to about 29%. These place, you know, the place where we're all supposed to come together as spiritual families, mm-hmm. where we all get together and we all learn about God, share our struggles and our life experiences together. We try to sharpen each other. We try to help each other along and so forth. We've got people that are that are that are that are missing in action here, and we don't know where they've gone. Forty percent um, of churchgoers in, in in these interviews, they're saying, "Hey, I don't. I, I, I feel like I'm missing a connection to my faith. I, I feel like it's not connecting with my real life experiences that yeah. are going on. I, I'm not feeling that." Fifty one percent of attendees, they they they're saying, "I've never even heard of this great commission." What do you mean? What is a great commission? We're going, good grief. As leaders, we're going, the great commission. This is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is Jesus saying, go into all the world, preach and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. What do you mean you haven't heard of this? And it's because some churches have gotten into so far into culture, mm-hmm. so far into to, to entertainment and things like this that we've gotten away from the football. We have gotten away from teaching scripture. Yeah. And now we have a whole group of saints that, they, man, they don't have tools. They don't have weapons. And a matter of fact, they don't have armor. They've got paper stuff that lights up really well on a battlefield if a fiery arrow of the enemy hits it. Yeah. So man, all of this to say we deal with this stuff, some real hardcore data, and then we look at answers and solutions in, in every chapter. And always try to share some testimony and so forth and and really relate it to people. Man, that is so powerful. And man, even just given that, like, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't jump around on my questions here a little bit now, because um, everything you just said kind of ties into this next question I had about like something you actually have, you know, on the uh, the jacket write up of the book. And, you know, it says that this book, you know, offers a revolutionary training that helps you explore profound warrior models to navigate your right. personal battles, engage powerful strategies to defeat enemies within and without, and embrace mm. a code of virtue to armor your life and ignite your spirit. Like, that mm. is a lot to consider on top of what <laughs> you just listed off there. I mean, like, do we have yeah. time to, to break down each of these and, you know, their significance to folks and how that can actually help in? Because... Like first off, like what are the warrior models, and then mm-hmm. on top of everything else, how can they help equip a Christian, you know, like like myself for warfare when I'm still struggling with some of these things too? Yeah. Um, so coming back to just just the first uh, warrior chapter, you know, with the, the samurai where we deal with him and so forth, we we look 
at each each of these six warrior cultures, and each of them had this ideal, like I talked about, of a master warrior. Well, with the samurai, it was a, it was the servant warrior. That's yeah. what the name samurai meant. It's what it implied, and it meant centering your life around this master persona, devoting yourself entirely to him. Well, you start immediately looking kind of at the Christian experience today, and our devotion to him, our our fidelity with him, with his teachings, um, our willingness to deal with our own nasty flesh so that we can follow him in obedience mm -hmm. to his principles, to his commands and so forth, that really starts coming into question. Um, the samurai were so fanatical, obviously, in their beliefs, as we would call it, so radical in their belief that, you know, they they were willing to take their own life if they believed they had committed an honor code violation against a master, uh, and so forth. You know, we really don't think about that in these terms in such radical ways. But when you start just looking at okay, how does this relate into scripture? Jesus talks about, of course, in the Gospels. Jesus says, "Hey, if your own eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, right hand offends you, cut it off." Mm -hmm. Well, he talk about is he talking about decapitation? Is he talking about the literal? No, Jesus was giving us a hardcore metaphor. Going look. If you're going to follow me, you've got to learn to deal ruthlessly with your sin. Yes. You've got to get serious about this thing. You, you've got to think of it in, in a warfare sense. You've got to think of it in a surgical sense. If you had a, 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 a part of your body that was gangrenous, you know, filled with cancer and you can't, yeah. you know, the doctors are going to tell you that, you that you need to excise that. The doctors, they're going to tell you, we need to take this thing out or it's going to kill you and so forth. And Jesus is saying the same thing about sin here. Sin is like that. It is like cancer. It is mm -hmm. like gangrene and it will eat you up if you don't deal decisively with it. The samurai had that kind of mentality about dealing with themselves and so forth. But when it came right down to it, um, we talk about these the, the lessons comparing here, I mentioned June Shi earlier, this willingness to follow a master in death and so forth. When it came down to doing this, a samurai could lose courage in the midst of, of, of taking his life. And so he would appoint what was called a kaishakunin, um, basically a second. And this, this devoted brother, this skilled swordsman would watch him in this this ceremony, this seppuku ceremony yes. where he's supposed to self-immolate, where he's supposed to take his own life, he would watch him. And if the samurai at, at, at any time lost courage in doing this, you know, his second would jump up, like you see maybe in The Last Samurai or another such movie and so forth, mm -hmm. and would take his head from his shoulders. Well, we go, well, good grief. There's another grisly metaphor. This right. is terrible. And so forth. But Again, as we talk about dealing with our own sin, how does this translate? In James 5.16, which I mentioned earlier, confessing your faults one to another, getting real about our sin, really taking the mask off and going, okay, this is what's going on in my marriage right now. We're, we're, we're losing the battle. We're on the brink of divorce. Or, look, I'm stuck in pornography. I thought I was free and I'm not. I'm dealing with, you know, I, 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 I'm... I'm full of greed. I'm selfish. You know, I have a gambling problem. I have an addiction, whatever it may be. It takes courage to deal with that. Yes. But what we also see in scripture is that God does it in the midst of spiritual family. He gives us brothers and sisters and he looks at us and tells us to forge these kinds of intimate bonds with trusted people, with skilled people, leaders, brothers and sisters who can walk beside us every day and encourage Absolutely. us and pray for us and so forth. And he says, okay, now guys, Get real about your life.
And if you will, the stuff that has, that has paralyzed you for years in these areas, the stuff that fills you with shame, that, that makes you just feel like, good grief, I, just, I feel like I just want to give up on this thing sometimes. These tools, these things will help you. The same way that the samurai had that second, we need a brother to come alongside us and say, look, let me help you deal with this. You can't deal with this by yourself. You never were supposed to. If we were supposed to deal with sin by ourselves, Jesus never would have gone to the cross, number one. Absolutely. But if we were supposed to continue living the life by ourselves afterwards, he wouldn't have given us a church. He wouldn't have given us a family to do life with. And, and that's what it all comes down to. So we, we really look and try to find these practical tools that are going to help us deal with the stuff internally. And then, that's, you know, like with, with the samurai, he helps a lot in that way. But some of these other warrior models, like the Spartans, the Spartan. His ideal of, of a warrior um, was what we called the citizen soldier. Mm-hmm. It was this guardian of the state, this protector, this one that from an early age, like Spartans were, they had what was called the agoge. And the agoge was the Spartan rearing. And at seven years old, a boy was taken from his home. He was raised in this kind of uh, pedagogical environment. He had a teacher. He had a mess hall that he reported to and so, and, and so forth. And he began learning warfare from the time he was seven years old on up to the time he was 20. Think about that. That's crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. It's a draft, basically. He's taken away from home at this dear age. Boy, you talk about separation anxiety from oh, moms. Absolutely. All kinds of <laughs> tough things here. Um, but by the time he's 20 years old, this kid's like a delta force of one. He's just a bad mammer jammer. He, oh, yeah. he can kill you with a spear. He can kill you with the shield that's in his hand. He can wield that thing like a discus and, and, and break your neck with it just in one fell swoop and so forth. And by the time we, we look at, at, at some of the greatest lessons in Spartan history, like the Battle of Thermopylae, okay, 486 AD, where Xerxes the Great is coming with the largest land army probably in the world at that time. He is marching towards Greece. He's going to take them all. And it's time for some warriors to step up and ante up. Well, no different, really, in some ways than, than the movie depicts, you know, the Frank Miller depiction, the Zack Snyder depiction. Mm-hmm. We've all seen it, you know. Yep. Spartans, prepare for glory, okay? Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously some loose and some... And, uh, depictions and things like that. Yeah. But it's rooted in real history. And Frank Miller was good about appealing to a lot of those original writings uh, and so forth. And I dig into the original source material to show people where they can find it in notes all throughout the text oh, that's amazing. Uh, and so forth. But we dive into that. And as Xerxes and this huge army is descending upon Greece, it falls to the Spartans, because everybody else, what are they going to do? They're going to sit here and argue back and forth. The bureaucrats are just going to talk. The politicians are just going to be talking heads and so forth. Well, mm-hmm. somebody probably ought to do something and, and all of this kind of stuff. But meanwhile, you have this culture of men, uh, of, of warriors, who this is how they've been raised for generations. And, and they're ready to step up for such a time as this. And they step forward, and we have this Battle of Thermopylae where a handful of Spartans, around 300, that are the royal bodyguard, basically, of Leonidas yep. I, um, and then uh, some other loose Greek city-states that send out a handful of their citizen soldiers and so forth, about 3,000 probably by the time we're done, they're facing an, of an army that's prob- possibly somewhere in, in the vicinity of a million people. 
but they're smart, they're wise, and they take their battle to this place called Thermopylae, the, the, the hot gates or the gates of hell. Mm-hmm. And this, this narrow mountain pass at the Caledra, uh, the Caledra of Masson in, in, in ancient Greece, this very narrow mountain pass where it seems that there's really no way to get around, so you've got to punch through. And these Spartans, they're, they're, they're smart. They're crack warriors and so forth. They, they fight in failing formations and row upon row, side by side, interlocking shields, dory spear, this long eight-foot spear in one hand that's got a deadly blade on one end, this thing called the surrouder or lizard killer on the other end, that's this butt spike that is good for crushing skulls for anybody that falls underneath you. So I can kill you with the business end, or I can kill you with the back end of this thing. And these guys, their job is to hold the pass. It's to keep this massive army that is going to consume Greek culture in an instant, the cradle of democracy in, world, in the world at this time. All the, uh, so many uh, 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 of the ways of life that we cherish now. We talk about democratic elections. Yep. This is the infancy of so much of our civilization that has been handed down to us right here. And but for the handful of braves that step forth at this moment and are willing to fight for the death, shield upon shield until the last man is taken down, this, this, this civilization is going to be gone. Well, you look at now, look over here in Christendom and the important battles that we are fighting for faith and for family and the culture. We have a culture that is trying to redefine the family every time we turn around. It, we, you know, masculinity, we don't need that stuff. It's toxic. Get rid of that kind of stuff. We don't need that dads and we don't, you know, we, uh, a girl can be this and a guy can be this and so forth. And we want to define the image of God. We want to take away the need for, you know, well, being a mommy, that's not a, that's not a thing at all. We don't need that. On and on we go. You look at all of these strategies, all of these ways that the enemy through the world is trying to rip the family to pieces. Yes. And we either do one of two things as a church. We either retreat and we surrender that ground. And we then have an invasion into our culture oh, of some of the yeah. most godless things we've ever seen. Or we stand firm as Christians. We hold forth the gospel. We stand for these truths in society. We hold out these things. We fight for them tooth and nail. We, we, we go to school board meetings. We, we, we vote for godly government as we can. We, we teach our kids. We, we try to raise them in scripture and other things like that. And so we're, either we're doing these things or we're not. So, again, you see, you see how relevant some of these lessons suddenly become as we translate Absolutely. them into the Christian experience. Absolutely. And, it's it, man, that's so much to take in. But, again, it, it ties back to something that we both mentioned earlier that a lot of today mirrors what was going on in these cultures and societies back then and vice versa. It literally is a cycle that's repeating itself. And it is. you are arming us with this book here. But one of the biggest things, especially like with the engage portion that you've got is strategies mm-hmm. to defeat enemies within and without. And I know, mm-hmm. you know, being completely honest and transparent here, I'm probably one of my own biggest enemies. So like <laughs> if anybody else out there is like me, which I'm coming to find out there are, what are some things uh, like some of these strategies? I know some of this you've already mentioned, but what are some yeah. other strategies that this book entails that can help somebody like me kind of 
get out of my own way and excise these, you know, these inner struggles as well. Yeah. Um, so one of the, the, the big takeaways of the book, at the end of each chapter, um, we have a, a set of questions that are good for personal study or, or for small group discussion and so forth. As, as you and, and your, your people are, are kicking things around and really digging in and trying to find the applications. Tactical takeaways is what it's called. And there's about three to four questions at the end of every chapter where we do a review. We look back on what we just learned, and then we talk about, okay, what are the applications that we need to work on here? Um, towards the end of the book also, there's a wonderful breakdown of all of the actual weapons, the actual tools, the doctrines that we looked at, and, and so forth within each warrior chapter. And so things, uh, practical, everyday Christian tools like confession and accountability which comes into play, obviously, in the samurai culture, Absolutely. getting honest and real and, and so forth. Um, when we talk about prayer, okay, the, the Bible talks about prayer. There's many different forms of prayers. You really start diving into the scriptures about it. And one of the, the, the lost arts, really, I think, of, of modern-day Christianity is praying with the Psalms. You know, the Psalms, we think of that, well, that's a songbook. You know, it's, it's a hymn book, basically, that's right there in the middle of Scripture, and that's true, but it's also packed with the prayers of David and Asaph and so many other believers that it poured into this thing over time. And when we get into the Knights chapter, uh, about the, for the fourth warrior chapter in, and we start looking into medieval Europe, mm -hmm. um, boy, what a chaotic period this was. It, it begins at the fall of the Roman Empire uh, around 450 um, AD there, and then moves on into the, the 15, 1600s there, uh, and so forth. But it begins with the Roman collapse, and, and Europe falls apart. There's no central government. There's no police force anymore. Right. Um, it, it's kill or be killed. And the, those with, that have money, those that have uh, a hand, you know, can afford to have warriors at their beck and call. These are the guys that are now wielding the power, and they go out and they fleece people like sheep on a regular basis. They attack the villages and so forth. They build a castle nearby just so that they can do this kind of stuff. Um, the night, the night culture originated out of this. <laughs> the former soldiers uh, of the Roman army and Celts and other places and so forth mm -hmm. that. They're living in this world now, too, and they've got to live, thrive, and survive, uh, and so forth. And it begins by preying off, off local defenseless people and so forth. And chivalry, um, <laughs> this ideal that, that, hey, there's going to be a code of ethics that knights follow, um, that, that define a knight, that define honor, that define compassion, that define mercy and justice in this age where all of a sudden it's gone. Um, as this period had begun and the Roman, uh, Roman Empire collapsed, you lost all the centers of education, all, all the centers, like I mentioned, of justice and policing and so forth, um, the, the things like uh, uh, farming and aqueducts, um, sanitation, all of these things are gone with it within months also. So literally, it is, it is just, it's an apocalyptic Europe. Okay, that's what we're looking at. If you thought of somebody dropping a couple of nuclear bombs on America, Ooh, yeah. God forbid, detonating some EMP weapons, launching us back into the Stone Age because you've just wasted electronic technology, yeah. you know, um, decimated it and all of this kind of stuff. Now you kind of get into this place of going, good grief. Look at just what the pandemic did to us. 
And now go back to medieval Europe, and they're dealing not just with the fall of the Roman Empire, they're dealing with multiple pandemics. They had they had two within just years of each other, then some more after that. And then they had then they, they faced invasions every day. It was it was hell to live in this place. And the the nightly culture comes out of this this desperately lost place where the church is trying again to help people, to help them find their way. And when Rome collapsed and refugees were pouring out of Rome herself into the countryside, just like is going on in Ukraine right now, we're wondering where are all these people going to go? How are all these neighboring countries around going to help them absorb all this stuff and help them? And also, well, in medieval Europe, you didn't have other governments that, that were going to help. You didn't have welfare. You didn't have so many of the charities and other things right. that we now have in place. You had the church. In the absence of government, that's what was left. And St. Jerome, as we start digging into some of his writings, he said the church stepped up. And the church started throwing open its doors. And you had monasteries, churches, places of worship that looked at all, these, all of these refugees and they said, come live here. We'll take care of you. We'll feed you. We don't know how we're going to do it from day to day, but we'll manage. We love you. God loves you. And he hasn't left you. So come on in here. Yes. And so they're taking taking care of women and children and men. And they're acting like hospitals, too, for people that have been wounded. Little by little, they're trying to nurse the culture over here. And they're dealing with a robber baron culture over here. And so they're trying to teach these, these guys that have these amazing skills, hey, you need to use those things for good. And... You look across the culture of, of Europe, and we have these amazing movements that arose called the peace and the truce of God. It, it, it's so powerful. Priests, rabbis, friars, these guys, they got, they got so indignant, like Jesus walking into the temple and seeing it as become a den of thieves and robbers, and he starts cracking his whip, and he's driving out cattle and so forth. The same thing's happening here. You've got these priests and rabbis and so forth. They, they're stepping up. And they're saying, you guys can't do this anymore. You can't treat people like this. You can't continue to rob from this because the judgment of God is on you. I mean, they are preaching fiery sermons, literally calling all of these guys out into the middle of fields, laying tables out that are packed with skulls and skeletons of, of former saints and so forth. And they're looking and saying, these bones are a witness against you. The blood of the innocence that you have slain is on your hands, preaching some hellfire and brimstone messages and so oh, forth. Yeah. But as they're doing this and boldly confronting a culture that's hurting people and preying on them, you have amazing testimonies that begin to happen. God begins to move on hearts and convict and break them. And men are blubbering like idiots and repenting and saying, I'm sorry, I'll turn from my sins. I'll turn to Christ and so forth. And now it falls to the church to begin to teach these guys what it is to use these skills. And this is where chivalry begins. They start writing liturgy. They start crafting ritual ceremonies to raise up knights. All of these things that we as young men are running around with swords going, I'm a knight. I'm Sir Lancelot. I'm this, you know, <laughs> and so forth. And our kids are fighting with these things. They're running back and forth with their shells. And I'm slaying the dragon. All of this comes out of this culture because the church once more gets a vision of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, bringing it into these horrible situations. The, and, and what is so amazing about the nightly culture itself is it begins with coming in and defending these same people that they were preying on 
the day before. Now they're going to protect them from the bandits. Now they're going to make sure if they go to this place, they have a place to stay. Yeah. And they're going to serve them and they're going to feed them on and on and on. And as we bring it into our experience today, we look at our own culture and we see hungry people still. We see poverty stricken people here. We see you, things going on with Ukraine and other places of the world. We still see the need for missions. We still the, see the need for charitable organizations. And the idea here in the book is that we're casting a vision for fighting war, spiritual warfare where it really, really counts. It's not just about we're, we're fighting demons in ethereal realms. Yes, we are. And we talk about that in other parts mm-hmm. of the book, too. But we're fighting it in real time for people to help them to deal compassionately with them and to try and manifest the loving kindness of God in some very real tangible ways where people are at. I love that. I love that 100%. That is, so, man, like everything else that we've covered today has been so powerful and like it, it, it will make a difference. 100% will make a difference and will help guide these people where they may be lost or like we've mentioned earlier, may not have that guidance. But mm-hmm. with everything we have covered, I do have one last question about the book here. And this yeah. is going to, um, you know, cover the embrace portion that's mentioned on the uh, on the right up there. Mm-hmm. And mm. I'm just curious because, you know, like in a world where we mentioned the percentages of people that lead the church deal with depression yeah. and burnout is a thing in today's day and age. What can this book offer? You know, like, you know, it says a code of virtue to armor your life and ignite your spirit. Can yeah. you talk about this a little bit more when something like depression or burnout can mm. easily tamper that flame and some people lead them astray and put it out completely? How can this book help in that regard? Yeah. Um, so one of the things we dig into, and we dig into this in the, in the gladiator chapter, um, by the way, in the gladiator chapter, um, we look at uh, one of the types of gladiators of the time. And well, you start talking about gladiators, of course, everybody thinks of the movie um, with Russell Crowe and so forth. Great, mm-hmm. great movie by Ridley Scott and so forth. Um, but there was a special type of gladiator called a bestiarius, a beast fighting gladiator. Oh, wow. That's what it meant. And they faced everything from pythons and bulls and lions and rhinoceros and so forth and all this kind of stuff. And there was somebody there, um, the doctor, that was the actual Latin for the coach. He was a he was a beast fighting gladiator himself or had been a gladiator who had fought in that that branch of combat and others as well. But he, he was, he was where he was at because he'd survived in the arena. Bottom line. Right. He had that t-shirt. Um, and so now he was going to pass along these lessons to the guys that were up and coming so that they could survive and thrive and so forth. And the, the beast fighting gladiators, these guys that fought these, these terrible things and survived these battles, um, in scripture, I mentioned uh, before where Peter compares Satan to a lion in First Peter chapter 5. John compares Satan to an actual fire-breathing dragon in Revelation chapter 12. Interesting. I said, where do you get the idea of a dragon to begin with? Huh, we can chase that one. Um, <laughs> and then you have, of course, in, uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He tells the Corinthians, he says, I'm afraid for you guys, lest you be you be deceived, even as the serpent deceived Eve, you know, alluding to the the tree in the Garden of Eden there and so forth. So he compares, God compares Satan in these three different places in Scripture, these high points, um, to uh, a lion, to a dragon, 
into a serpent. And as you start digging into these lessons that we really call zoomers, um, basically it's comparing an animal with to human type qualities, giving mm-hmm. them kind of personifications and so forth. And where these guys say, well, Satan's like this. He's like a lion that does this. He's like a dragon that does this. He's like a, a serpent that does this and so forth. Peter, Peter is one who, who specifically deals with this. We, we think of that, about that verse about be sober and be vigilant and resist these things, but we forget the verse right before it. In 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, cast all your anxieties upon this one who cares for you. And then he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion. Well, back up. He's saying here, look, it's not just that Satan prowls like this and tries to attack you. It's that Satan comes with anxiety. Yes. To rip your life apart. He comes with depression. And that's not to say, of course, that, you know, every time somebody experiences these things, well, that's the devil, you know, and you just cast out the devil. But that's not the case every time. Obviously, we have experiences in life that can give us these feelings and emotions that can set in place these patterns uh, and so forth. But in, in, in the book, we dig into some studies, actual medical studies from Columbia University over to the Indian Journal of, of, of Psychiatry, on across just a, an entire host of studies that look at how meditation, how prayer, how these things actually help us to overcome these types of things. You go, come on, that's crazy. That's stupid. No, no. I show you, I show you the studies and I show you where, where, this, where the source material is at so you can go check me on. That's you know fine. Take a look at it mm-hmm. because nurses are talking about this. Doctors have talked about yeah. this, uh, and so forth. So there's medications, of course, that can help us and, and and all that kind of stuff. And we can go see counselors, and those are great too. But the studies are actually showing this is where science is finally catching up with stuff that God's been talking about. <laughs> how the prefrontal cortex of the brain, how these places are actually thickened and strengthened to resist anxiety to resist depression literally the way our bodies almost fight off things with the with the immune system it strengthens these parts of our mind so that we don't become as susceptible and it gives us these these ways to vent to let off the stress the emotions and so forth it's 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 crazy because when we tend to think of spiritual warfare we think of okay well that's spiritual stuff but here's my everyday stuff this is this is where it's really really at and so I appreciate that, but, but I need this and I need this. No, we really connect all the dots and we show how these weapons really do help. And so when we talk about armoring our life, really protecting ourselves, you can see where these weapons, I, I show you these connections, where these weapons really, really do help, um, where these, these, these cultures of virtue the samurai with its chief virtue of love. A lot of people will be surprised just to hear that of the culture of Bushido, that the, that the greatest the greatest virtue that they esteemed, we call jin or compassion. It meant an act of love, a compassionate deed, doing, serving other kind of love, mm-hmm. helping others that way. Uh, the knights, a, a culture of compassion, the, the the Spartans, a culture of consecration, of being sold out to a cause and not being swayed by the world um, and, and allured into the materialism and other things like this. So many of these things that we've lost touch with in our modern day study of spiritual warfare, we reacquaint ourselves. And in the process of just learning history, 
in the process of just digging back into these things and going, man, I didn't know that about prayer. Man, I didn't know that about meditation. I didn't know this about, about this part of confession and accountability or these other disciplines over here. By the time we've taken the whole circuit, it's, it, you're getting this, this education and this training in warfare that, that I, I, promise, I promise people, look, if, 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 if your life is not changed, if it's not different, then you know, send the book back. I'll give you your money back. Um, but what I promise you will happen is this. Your life's going to get turned upside down. And it could end up helping you save your marriage. It could change how you, how you parent. At all of these places, it will help you and it will arm you. And you'll feel like instead of getting yourself kicked around by another spiritual giant, of the culture that we're facing, you'll feel like, you know what? I've got the tools and I've got the wisdom yeah. now and I have an army with me and I can do this. And that's, I mean, that's what everybody needs in their corner, especially in the craziness that we're all going through right now. Like the world is a crazy place around us, but if you have that to stand steadfast and resist, mm. I mean, that's it. That is it to a T. Mm. And man, like that, as everybody can hear now, like there's some powerful stuff to equip us for this everyday <laughs> warfare that we go through in this book. And, mm. you know, I mean, is there anything else that you want to leave us with as we as we wrap up our interview here? Um, you know, everybody loves history, I think, you know, you know we, maybe we watch the History Channel or we Nat Geo and things like that. we love um, a lot of these lessons and things like that. Um we love fascinating stories and so forth. One of the first takeaways for me in the book of digging so much into this history was really getting into these people's lives and their personal struggles, realizing that you no know, history hasn't changed. Um, history is not looking, I mentioned this early on um, in the book, history is not looking through a window. Right. It's looking in a, mir in a mirror. And if we ever emerge from looking into history with a sense of self-righteousness, like how could those Romans be so stupid as to have a gladiator culture, um, you know, or, or, or how could those Spartans, you know, uh, um, be so terrible as to take a boy away from his mother at this age or whatever. Um, if we ever emerge with a sense of self-righteousness, this kind of holier than thou attitude, which we can not only have in the church, we can have it in the culture too. We can look at somebody else and just rip them up on Twitter going, how could you make that mistake, you, you terrible person? Mm -hmm. On and on. This, the, the holier-than-thou Pharisaic culture isn't just limited to the church. It's everywhere. Um, but as we look into this history, we see, a real, see, we see a real people and real struggles. And when we dive into this stuff um, in the book and we begin looking at the lessons and so forth, the thing that, that, that people are going to, to walk away with. The main understanding is that they're going to see that spiritual warfare is not an event. It's a way of life. Okay. It's, it's a way of understanding our world. When Paul wrote to Timothy in second Timothy chapter two, he said, endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No warfare, no warrior, no soldier gets himself entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please his commanding officer. In Ephesians 6, you remember he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. He speaks in active, present, real time. And he says, these things are going on right now. Mm -hmm. For too many of us, 
here in the church, in the Christian culture, we've developed this mentality that warfare is an event. Warfare is not going on right now. It's something that I face when I walk out the door after I've had my coffee. Um, it's something that I, that I may run into when I get to work, but that's work. I'm going to see it more when I maybe turn on the television or maybe when I open my phone and look at my Twitter feed or whatever. Right. Um, think we try to relegate it to these specific places and we forget what Satan is like. We forget that we live in a fallen world. We forget that we have a terrible sin nature still living inside of us that we've got to deal with and take our own thoughts captive. It's going to, the book is going to help take people away from that event mindset and put them back into the biblical mindset, which is a way of life that we are all soldiers 24 seven. We need to be armed. We need to be ready and it'll give them the practical tools to come out victorious and it's changed my life everybody who's who's been through the material is is saying the same thing so i i hope people will give it a chance and for those that that maybe wouldn't normally take a look at this or maybe they think you know that christian stuff is just punk it, you know it's just a bunch of silly fairy tale nonsense we deal with stuff in a very academic sense in the book also we take time to dig into the history. We take time to dig hard into biblical culture and so forth so that people just know it's, this is not something that I wrote as a fairy tale or, or pie in the sky from the, 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 the lofty castle looking down you know, on the plebes or something like this. Mm -hmm. um, we, we really take a hard-nosed approach to it, and I, I think people are going to be genuinely surprised by it, and I think they'll, they'll then be genuinely changed by it. Absolutely. And guys, if you'd like to purchase your copy of The Soldier Code, I am going to have the link to that in the show notes as well. So please make sure that you give it a shout. And if you like it, man, connect with Duncan. I'm going to have his information in the show notes again as well. Make sure you mm -hmm. get connected. Make sure you spread the word about this book and get it out there because it's something everybody in today's day and age can use to not only, you know, change their life for the better, but it can help change the world around you too because mm -hmm. this is all stuff that can apply to everybody's everyday walk of life. And it's something that we all need and such, you know, we're still going through crazy uncertain times as COVID is still a thing. Give yourself the armor to not fall back into the traps and the pitfalls that you may have already fought so hard to pull yourself out of, you know, keep yourself on the right track. Give this mm. book a read and get the word out there about it, guys. I guarantee you that it's something that you're going to love. Got to hit the pause button here for a second and ask. Are you enjoying what I've got going on with I Know You Hear Me, Tales from the Haunt, and everything else going on with Flynn Hendricks Enterprises? Have you been keeping up and learned that I'm back in the pro wrestling business? Do you want to show your support and look pretty cool while you do it? Then have I got some good news for you. You can now head over to ProWrestlingTees.com slash Flynn Hendricks and pick up your very own one-man enterprise and I Know You Hear Me shirt. Every purchase helps me keep bringing you these awesome podcasts, and if you want a special shout-out from me or just Jeff, Tag us in a pic of you wearing your Flynn shirt, and we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast and all of our social media platforms. And make sure you use the hashtag, I know you hear me. So go check the link in the show notes. Go to my website, theflynnhendricks.com, or go to prowrestlingtees.com slash flynnhendricks. That's prowrestlingtees.com slash F-L-Y-N-N-H-E-N-D-R-I-X, and get your shirts today. And I know you hear me. All right, everybody, welcome back to the I Know You Hear Me podcast. Uh, this is Duncan Brannon, <laughs> friend of Flynn Hendricks here, and he asked me to jump into the driver's seat just for a second. And this is, this is, this is something that I was really, really looking forward to. 
Well, I'm excited about this because you have had an incredibly interesting life too. Still yes, in the middle of living it last time I looked. <laughs> and even recently, you know, as you mentioned, I think here in just the broadcast just a little bit ago, you mentioned, you know, hey, getting back into the wrestling arena, getting yes, back into this world and so forth. So naturally, I'm curious about that and, and, and what may have led to that. So I, I'm going to start there just for a second. If, if maybe you haven't covered this already. You got to tell me what what led you to this decision? Because obviously you came out of it at one point, mm-hmm. looking at other stuff and so forth. Now you're looking at, they're pulling me back in. What's yep. going on here, man? Tell me the story. Man, this is actually something that I've been uh, going back and forth with like in my own head over and over again because... You know, originally I got out back in 2014 before I got married. That lasted about a year before they pulled me back in. And my intention was, you know, going out and, you know, going out on my own sword, uh, doing the favors and leaving it to somebody like the person that I was in the match with. My intention was for them to win. And lo and behold, the, they pulled the switch on the spot. I won. But wow. I still I still left, and then I come back again, flash forward to 2018, right before we find out we're pregnant with our second child, and I just, it was unintentional, but I didn't in, intend on coming back after I was out for a little bit, son's on the way, you know, it's like, well, maybe this is it, this is my reason to not go back. That last match, again, same thing, had every intention of doing the favors to the guy and leaving somebody, you know, established on my way mm-hmm. out the door, which oddly enough, I've got a match this coming Saturday. Now, uh, this past Saturday as this airs, but I've got wow. a match with him again, like one of my best friends that we've been up and down the road with, but lo and behold, the end of the match gets switched again. I win. So I'm just convinced at this point, I'm not going <laughs> to officially be done until I lose on my way out as I've been trying to do, <laughs> but it was actually, one of the guys um, who I just saw for the first time, and I don't know how long this past Saturday, in the ring, he goes by the name Vic the Bruiser. Uh, he's a former guest on the show, Victor Lewis. He mm-hmm. asked me to come out, come out of retirement specifically for uh, his retirement show, which was uh, this past Saturday now as we're recording. And he's he's doing his retirement tour. And the premise of the show was matches he wanted to see. So he said... You know, I always enjoyed working with you, which was a huge feather in my cap because I looked up to this guy and he's like, I want to see you back in the ring. I want to see you uh, working with a lot of these younger guys because his thought was when Vic the Bruiser is gone, how many of these young guys are going to be able to carry the torches and deliver on these shows that these veterans have? Because, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. the musical acts we see, like a Greg Allman or Vince Gill, the Eagles, you name it. When they're gone, mm. they're gone. Yeah. Who's going to yeah. be able to carry that torch? And man, oddly enough, I kind of didn't realize how much I'd wrestled with myself about not feeling fulfilled with how things went out. So mm. I've got a chance to come back now. And not that I'm wow. a, a veteran, in, an industry veteran by any means, but I've done a lot of things. I've got the acting experience under my belt now, and that's helped mm-hmm. me put so many pieces together while I'm still getting back into ring shape like I used to be, but I'm actually able to help these people and help them develop along the way so that Mm. as they start telling their own stories and they start carrying the torch for a company, they're able to do these things that made wrestling so great and made us all fall in love with it. And Mm -hmm. that's just kind of been my goal at this point is just making these people that are younger than me that are doing it now 
but making the crowd love them that much more because I'm naturally the bad guy and all that. So <laughs> <laughs> is, is it, I've got to ask, is it, is it surreal? I mean, does it feel kind of like a dream kind of, yeah, I can't believe you know, kind of standing on the outside, looking in at yourself, just what's, what's going on in your head? Here? Very, very much. So it's, it's a lot to process, but um, a lot of the time I try not to have, especially now since I've taken like over a year and a half's worth of improv and I have that under my belt, I don't try and overanalyze things before they happen. I just let it be in the moment. I've got my, I've got tunnel vision to an extent, but I've also got an eye on the crowd. I've got an ear on the crowd and I try to adapt everything to what they're wanting and what they're biting for. Because if we go Mm -hmm. out there with a young kid that wants to do all this stuff and they don't react to any of it, we're yeah. wasting our time, we're wasting our efforts, and they're not getting their money's worth. So it's helped yeah. me, to an extent, it's impressed me more now that I don't have to do as much physically as I can mm-hmm. with a microphone in my hand. I get more of a reaction with a microphone <laughs> than anything else, and that's, that's it would, for yeah, me. I would, imagine that, <laughs> I would imagine that your voiceover experience has opened your mind in a lot of ways here. Absolutely. About how important a, a of your of your talk your demeanor your 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 character your style everything outside that makes up the the exterior the outside of the arena game mm-hmm. i'd imagine voiceover has just played right into that in absolutely and then on the on the flip side too going into it it's amazing how much wrestling kind of prepared me for so much of this stuff too huh wow okay so one of the questions that I really wanted to get to um, mm-hmm. is, is obviously you, you did this for a pretty good while before, had a pretty good circuit and so forth, a lot of experiences. Did you did you ever sustain any kind of, of serious injury and have have some kind of moment? Because we we know we've we've read the stories. We've, we've oh, yeah. looked in the magazines. You know, we've seen it online. Of course, we now we nowadays we've got documentaries on what has happened to, to some to some of the greats and so forth did you ever have a serious injury and and if so what what was it like how did you deal with it man okay so there are some i've had a few but a lot of mine are tame compared to others um Mm. concussions are the most common one i i I hate Mm. to say i've lost count of how many i've had but thankfully like back in 2020 um i before the world shut down i went and got a, a test done i got an mri i had the the blood work done to make sure that my brain was all right because I felt like I wasn't functioning at the level mm-hmm. I should be. But now come to find out, um, I don't get REM sleep. So that's what was playing into it. And just a lot of the stresses from work and everything were kind of exaggerating mm-hmm. that. But now I'm I'm in the process of getting that looked at to get corrected. But, you know, mid-match, I've had a finger dislocated and the adrenaline's going. Oh. So you, you pop it back in. Don't think about it till after the fact. Um, actually was in a, I don't want to pull the curtain back too much on this or make people yeah. think that we're, you know, like in a, in a game of self mutilation, but sure. there, there is a thing where you've seen wrestlers bleed. We have a procedure yeah. for how we do that. Um, yeah. there was a guy that I was in the ring with. He wasn't the safest about that. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize this till after the fact, but where he kept his instrument for, you know, causing his own bleeding had come loose and he had gone Uh to do a move to my leg. I didn't Mm. realize till after the fact I had a pretty nasty gash right there on the inside of my quadricep. And I still have Mm. the scar to this day, but that's probably the one that could have outside of the concussions been the most dangerous. And then 
and force and yeah, there's a femoral artery around yep. there somewhere. That's it. And it's like I didn't realize it till after the fact. I'm like, oh man, that adrenaline's a strong thing. But the one that the one that was the most reoccurring and nagging and has affected a lot of my training methods now is especially in college, again, not knowing back then that I didn't get rim sleep, um, being a smaller guy in stature compared to a lot of these other guys, the goal was always get big, get big, get big. So I did a lot of heavy lifting and put a lot of wear and tear on my nerves and joints, especially in my arms. Um, mm -hmm. In 2011, I sustained some nerve damage on the inside of my left elbow, and I believe mm -hmm. the common terminology would be golfer's elbow. And, you know, mm -hmm. it would flare up, it would go away, it would flare up, it would go away. But 2019, it, it kind of flared up to the point where it wouldn't go away. There were sharp, intense pains. I couldn't extend mm. my arm all the way, and I actually wow. ended up having to have surgery in 2020, a few months into the pandemic, and right after mine and my wife's anniversary, where I could actually get full extension of my arm again and get a little bit of arthritis in my left, uh, my left wrist taken care of as well that had occurred from trying to compensate for the issues that were stemming there. But, you know, again, compared to some of the issues that other people have had, a lot of my stuff sounds tame, and that's crazy to say. Mm. So obviously as you're heading back into the ring now, you've got, you've got those experiences before, you know, places where you were injured and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so forth. How are you preparing yourself now? What maybe some lessons that you've learned, or maybe you've changed your training approach or things yes. like that. I think you alluded to that a second ago. Tell oh, me a little yeah. bit about that. Um, there's a lot more stretching, a lot more icy hot. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot more icy hot. And, and definitely, too, one of my mm -hmm. big things now is I'm not as afraid to say no or stick to my guns on something. Just, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to be a team player, but if it's something mm. that I can't personally deliver on the way it needs to be done, if I can't take a move safely and it's going to make both of us look bad, or it's something mm. that makes the other guy look good and I just can't take it in a way that's going to make him look strong, I'm not mm. afraid to say no at this point and give my reason why, but I can mm. offer a solution to how we can work around that and make something better. But, you know, mm. back in the day, I would either just go with the flow or just hold my tongue and go about it. But now I'm just I'm more willing to be outspoken for the betterment of everybody around me and not just, you know, like for the sake of ego or not willing to make myself look bad at somebody else's expense. Yeah, that's good. So a lot of wisdom, it sounds like you've absolutely you've really extrapolated and, and you're coming back into the to the game with that. What what do you think? you looking back what do you think was the just the 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 craziest or most exciting um match that that you were really ever a part of what's oh man what's one that maybe the fans have come back at you with man this was just just a barnstormer oh. man we love this one we loved this matchup this was this was this this guy was like your arch nemesis or whatever what what's what's the match that really really sticks out there are there are so many but um as the bad guy, I, I I don't know if you want to call it method acting or how you want to do it, but I get into the zone on it. And yeah. I, I've had fans, you know, come across the barrier and, you know, out of self-defense, I've had to, like, defend myself. But yeah. most recently, um, and again, this <laughs> I hate saying this, especially with a lot of the topics that we covered today, but, yeah. uh, you know, most recently, my second match back... Um, I had fans so riled up that not only were they trying to fight me, 
but they were also they called the local police department um and i think one of them had threatened to like burn the building down just so he could get to me and i as weird as this is to say like looking back i'm glad i didn't have my family at the show to see all that but (laughs) when you talk about wrestling today a lot of the like everybody knows that it's completely entertainment obviously you can't fake body slams anything like that but you know a lot of people are afraid to be the bad guy so that the good guy can you know come out and be the hero and make everybody be invested make the kids cheer and just Mm. everybody make everybody want to see me get beat like nobody has done that and i don't know how long and like that was just a huge badge of honor and a lot of it was just off the cuff being Mm. able to have those acting experiences and zone in on those people that were giving me the most crap and the most guff in the crowd and just (laughs) go back and forth with them and then get them so riled up. But, you know, unfortunately it did take away a little bit because it just, they kept going while the match was going on and, you know, it may have taken away from some fan experiences, but like everybody Mm. remembers that now. And then the show that's coming up this Saturday will be my first show back there since that's happened. So I'm oh. I'm excited to see how that's going to be, and you know I'm just it's nervous anticipation more than anything else, but it oh, makes it it I, makes it I fun. Totally get that. Okay, so last question yes, I got to throw at you here, um, and this is one I wanted to personally ask because you know I grew up watching Saturday Night Wrestling, of course, um, watching it at the Dallas Sportatorium. Um, so the the names Von Eric, oh, the yes. names. The names Michael Hayes, you know, oh, yeah. uh, the ones that were familiar around here. And then, of course, all the way up into the WWF, the, mm-hmm. the, the WWE and so on. Um, my brothers, my, my two older brothers, they're still uh, into wrestling to this day and so forth. I don't have as much time to pursue it. Of course, of course. Uh, in my watching of it and so forth. But all that to say, favorite wrestler of all time i'm gonna put you on the spot man obviously you learn things from from every one of them of course you look at you look at signature moves you look at at their 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 pomp their you know their splendor their style with a microphone and so forth and so you learn everything from but but what's the one that you just go man that was the guy for me this guy always hands down uh (laughs) without hesitation he'll always be my top five and like top of my top five and Oddly enough, it's it's so fitting that you ask this question because he is a, you know, reborn Christian. Uh, he went through his struggles early in life, gave his life to Christ, came back wow. and basically had a rebirth of his wrestling career and just had Ooh. everybody look at him in a completely new light. But, I mean, it's always going to be uh, Shawn Michaels, who actually started in Texas wow. and worked his way up from there. But, I mean, like, he's Ooh. still the one that everybody compares as that one and one A with Ric Flair, but... Just him being a smaller guy, seeing him being able to work with guys that are six foot ten, and he, you know, he's yeah. a few inches taller than me. But everything he did, no matter who he worked with, was so believable that it made sense that he was in that position. And I'm nowhere near as athletic as him, but that's that's my guy, one hundred percent. And I don't think I could pull off the flashy clothes he did either. But you know, that's <laughs> that's the guy because he was the ultimate entertainer, uh, entertainer, ultimate athlete, and like he just he pulled you in whether he was the good guy or the bad guy. So that's what stood out to me. So, so true. He, he has had such a versatile career. Yes. I I agree with you. Um, 
obviously it's such an interesting life story on the backside of it and his Christian experience. Absolutely. And then being that versatile inside the ring, having such a, a very dynamic skill set, such a great showman. Yes. Uh, and so very full orbed, very well developed Absolutely. Guy all the way around. I could definitely see why he's why he's right there in your top five of, of all time. Totally. Absolutely. Makes sense. Yes, sir. Well, did, I hope you enjoyed my questions for you. <laughs> I did, man. I did. And I'm glad we got to do this in because these little questionnaires have taken on a life of their own since like we've gotten into the second season. So I just mm. enjoy again, you know, like not knowing what I'm walking into and being able to respond <laughs> on the spot. I love it. Super. Well, Chris, thanks for being on the show with me. Of course, man. My <laughs> pleasure. And dude, again, thank you for trusting me to help get the word out about the soldier code and just for the friendship mm. that we've been able to develop as well, man. It means more than you'll know. Yeah. Thank you so much for um for having me on today here, Flynn. Um oh, of course, man. If people want to visit the re- website right now, it's it's thesoldiercode.com thesoldiercode.com same title as the book um and it's available right now up there on amazon we've got it in, in of course kindle version and people can get it in the paper or hardback also i'm, I'm old school i love holding a book in same my here uh, just same no, here no man substitute for that absolutely not and that's as, as an english major that's my thing i want to have the hard <laughs> copy in my hand to read it so i've got mine ordered if you haven't already i mean come on what are you waiting for I'm back in the body slam business at this point, so I may have to hold you up and you can order it that way. But either way, just get the book in your hand, get it on your Kindle, just get this book read because I guarantee you it's got something that's going to apply to everything each one of us is going through in our own daily walk. So guys, check this book out. Again, we're going to have links to the show, uh, links to the book in the show notes, excuse me. We're also going to have links to get you connected with Duncan as well. And I can't wait to hear some feedback on this book and see how you guys like it. So, Duncan, again, thank you for taking the time to not only come back on here, but trusting me to help you get the word out to the to our audience about this and just help do some good in the world at the same time. And it means a lot to me. Oh, a- absolutely, Flynn. And God bless you, man. Keep, keep fighting the good fight, brother. You're doing a great job. Thank you, and sir. And everybody else out there. Keep on keeping on. Absolutely, guys. So get this book ordered. Get connected with Duncan. You know the deal on all of our podcasting platforms and social media. Go get subscribed on your preferred platform. Follow us and get the word out there about this book and be the light in the world that everybody needs and just do some good at the same time. But for myself, for Duncan, I want to thank you all for tuning in again for today's special drop on this episode. And I can't wait to talk to you all again. I know you hear me. Yes, sir. Oh, I definitely do. And guys, I know you hear me when I say go get the soldier code. Once again, that link is in the show notes. I've got mine ordered. Why don't you get yours? The I Know You Hear Me podcast is a presentation of Flynn Hendricks Enterprises. We thank you for tuning in this week, and we hope you'll check out our sponsors and advertisers. Make sure you check us out next week as we come back at the same time with another awesome episode.